0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello. Welcome to the speaking of terrifying edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Anna Szymanski is here from Breaking Views. Hello. Emily Packers is here from HuffPost. Hello. We are going to talk about many terrifying things. There are terrified people who are terrified of...
1: Fires. Fires. Disease. Disease. A bad or Facial recognition.
0: <laughs> Face recognition. <laughs> this is going to be a particularly dystopian edition. We're going to dun, talk dun, about dun. what CNBC calls in its Chiron. The mystery virus, which as far as I can make out has no mystery about it at all. <laughs> no. It's a coronavirus, we know exactly what the virus is, we know where it is, we know how it spreads, but it's scarier if you call it a mystery virus, right? So we're going to talk about the virus and how bad it is, we're going to talk about the bushfires in Australia, and why people are giving money to try and help out, whether they're doing any good. We're going to talk about Clearview, which is a terrifying company, and much more. We're going to talk about Smile Direct Club
1: who get it done
0: So let's start with coronavirus because it's the most newsy, according to Emily Begg.
1: I just got a news alert about it right just now it's literally like it's actually newsy. literally in the news at this moment.
0: so I feel like every so often there's a sort of disease trendy, highly infectious disease which breaks across the cable news, breaks into the cable news consciousness. And then suddenly everyone is petrified about whatever it is that week, whether it's, you know, um, anthrax or Ebola or SARS, or now I guess it's coronavirus. And there's this weird sort of nationwide panic, which may or may not be based in reality. And then a few weeks later, everyone's kind of forgotten about it.
3: So
2: I kind of agree with you and kind of don't. <laughs> in that on the one hand, yes, I often think that these are just panics and especially in the United States, I would say right now there is still just a lot of panic. However, like SARS took like a percentage of GDP of off of China's GDP. Like this was not a small thing, it but it like eight hundred
0: people. Well yeah, but eight hundred people dying does not um take a percent off China's GDP. It's panic that takes a percent off China's GDP. You know, eight hundred people die in China every day because it has a billion people. And that's just what happens in China. It's it's the way that it affects transportation and commerce and all of that kind of thing. And some of those things are entirely rational and they've quarantined Wuhan because, you know, it's smart to do that. And some of those things, especially in America, are not rational.
1: Well, let's just back up. Okay. And talk about what's going on. We're talking about coronavirus which originated in Wuhan in China. Probably one of these animal to human kind of viruses, you know, like SARS like the was and flu. MERS, I think. Yeah. And um
0: there's a pig flu, there's a bird flu, who knows what this is. It's yeah. yeah. a bat. Maybe it's bat bat, bat, sure. bat flu. And this yeah. was
1: like in, in uh, some kind of open market where the animal human interaction is there's a lot of it. And so um, I guess 12 cities have been kind of put on lockdown by China, which is scary, I think. Like, I think that's part of what's feeding the panic. 40 million
2: people. You're talking about, I mean, which
1: is apparently the size of Canada's population. Fun fact. Anyway, uh, so that's what's going on. There's been two cases uh, diagnosed in the U.S. so far, just two. And then to put this in context, in the U.S. in any given year, 200,000 people are hospitalized for the flu. And 35,000 people die from the flu every year. But no one's panicking about that. Just fun thought for you. And not, people don't even get their flu shots.
0: Get your flu shots, people. If you haven't got your flu shot this year, you're, too, you're not too late. You should have got it by now, but I'm not going to shame you. Just go out and get it.
1: <laughs> so I think you have a point. It's It's, it's not the actual pandemic or disease it's the it's the chaos and the fear and the panic that causes the economic so i think problems it, i th- are there economic problems we should
0: so that so too. i think one of the unlucky things <laughs> that is happening here is that it the the height of the panic happens to have coincided with new year which is literally today happy new year people Yay. and um that is the biggest holiday in China. Everyone travels back home to see their family. There's a huge amount of gift-giving. There's a lot of commerce. There's a lot of traveling. And so the effect of coronavirus on that is number one. It's going to reduce travel. Number two, it's going to reduce commerce. It's going to reduce you know, the economic activity. And all of that is going to magnify the effects of the virus compared to if it had happened any other week of the year.
2: That's true. I mean, I also would say that having something happen now as opposed to SARS in like 2003, you're probably going to have a larger impact just because travel consumption services, that's all a larger part of China's economy now than it was in the past. So that means the impact could be magnified. And I think that ultimately you are correct that a lot of the negative economic impact is a result of the panic. However, humans panic. I I, I just I I don't feel like we're ever going to be able to undo that.
1: Right. Primal,
2: yeah. I mean, it's it's like market cycles; like they happen, and the central bank can't make you know, people stop panicking about a virus.
1: Panic does fuel a lot of a lot of economic problems, doesn't it? Really, if we could eliminate this this panic thing,
0: if there was no panic, there would never be any bank runs, and we wouldn't need the FDIC. <laughs> yeah, it'd be it's all true.
1: fine. Um, and then there were a couple of interesting um, pieces because everyone had tons of pieces about this because. People get really, really yeah. interested. They put on their face masks. They start freaking out. But again, get your flu shot. Anyway, there was a good a couple of good pieces in Bloomberg just about what the U.S. is doing around pandemics, which, you know, everyone kind of expects more of these. And, you know, people are more resistant to antibiotics now than they used to be. And apparently one issue for the U.S. in being prepared for these things is there's not enough public funding for research. But also big pharma is not that interested in curing these things so they don't devote that much money relative to other problems like say like cancer to r&d um on treating these kinds of pandemics no i mean sort of it, interesting
2: yeah and that, that is often the case with a lot of these is that it if something's going to happen rarely, it's not going to be the type of you know blockbuster drug that you're going to be putting a lot of money behind. So that does obviously suggest that you need more funding from the public sector. It's And in,
0: pharma in general just doesn't love infectious diseases. You know, yeah. it's just not what they like to fund, what they like to put money into. And so you wind up you know, getting weird coalitions cobbled together by the WHO and that kind of thing, saying like, you know, we have to work on these infectious diseases. But yeah, it's true. Like, it's it definitely seems to be a weak spot of the pharmaceutical industry in general.
2: It'll be interesting, too, because in China, I mean, part of the reason you had this, at least a part of the reason people think in Wuhan, was because you actually didn't have almost any funding or no, you had. Sorry. You had a lot less funding going into public health and actually a lot more money going into scientific research, which scientific research is good. But if you're not funding basic public health and you have like a university area where you have a lot of people moving back and forth, you can have this type of thing happen. And that's something in China in general that the hope is that this could actually spur more investment in actual public health.
1: Yeah. One thing I was thinking was, I mean, the Chinese, they can they can like quarantine a city. It's like. No big, I guess. But in the
2: U.S. I mean,
0: when you're, a, you know, communist dictatorship, you can do what you like.
1: Right. It's but tr- in the U.S., I mean, that's not going to happen.
2: Well, I, I will say it was slightly and I, I don't want I don't want to say funny because people are dying. But I did read a report where they were like, we're going to build another hospital in Wuhan in like six days. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know, and so I, 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 it's funny. I, it's not funny, but you hear these things that I think sometimes it's like. Planned economies, man. But then, on the other hand, <laughs> but then on the other hand, you know, part of the reason that these infectious diseases tend to can be made worse is because you have officials at the local level who don't want to say when something bad is happening because of the way this planned economy works, because of the fact that you have one government state. I mean, that, that happened in SARS and people think that that actually is why it took a little while for this to come out now, even though you had Chinese scientists saying there was a problem, but the local officials didn't really want to get in trouble.
1: So the numbers that we're seeing reported might be on the low side then. Like, I, I, I think it's like 35 deaths or something like that it could be much higher. We just don't know.
2: I think that's the assumption because it was also like the number was very low and then it kind of spiked fairly quickly. And I think it's not just because a bunch of people automatically just died. It was that all of a sudden things were coming out.
0: But again, like, you know, you're comparing it to the number of flu deaths. I mean, it's even lower than this time last year, I feel, was when we were at the height of the measles um, epidemic or pandemic, I can't remember what, what it got counted as in the end in the United States, which again killed more people than that. The problem with coronavirus is just the same with all of these other things like Ebola is that it's just eek. We don't know how to cure it. Although, you know, quietly without anyone really noticing, there is no cure for Ebola.
2: I mean, and, and so I guess maybe that is the the somewhat of the hope that some of these panics bring that they bring attention to things, and then they can bring funding, and then that can actually, in the long run make people often who live outside of the United States actually live longer.
1: I mean, and also, every zombie movie starts off (laughs) with like shot of like um, the the news, the TV news, and there's like a map and there's little red dots on the map about the virus that's coming. And then all of a sudden someone in America coughs and then the zombies take over. And it does, the way these things are covered, it does trigger mm-hmm. in me, at least, a feeling of like, oh, this is it. This, like, is, this is the this zombie is the apocalypse. Yes, and, and, and yeah, Even my, though I know it's not.
0: But it can be. My colleague, Eileen O'Reilly, <laughs> went to a simulation a couple of weeks ago about like, what happens if a virus spreads from China. And a whole bunch of international agencies took part in this and tried to contain this you know, hypothetical virus. And I think at the end, 93 million people had died or something. I mean, it, you can get there quite easily. Let us not forget you know, the Black Death literally killed half of Europe. You know these things. I mean, you know, granted,
2: things have improved a little. bit. Medicine is a little bit better since, <laughs> bit. since the twelfth century, but you know,
0: but the,
1: I mean, the the, the, flu- the influenza yeah. Uh, yeah. pandemic killed more people than. Am I right about this? Than World War One died in World War One. Am I? Am I right? I think that's we right. We can delete yeah. that. You know, not bad. not
0: to mention like more than ninety percent of Native Americans got killed off by you know.
1: Yeah, I and, mean, these are serious things, well, and you can understand a all, lot why people panic.
2: And also, I think you know when you have a period of time where you have more travel, when you have more people who are making more money, so they're eating more protein, so then you just are going to have more animal-human contact, you have climate change making higher temperatures and just also just messing with things in general, it seems like these things are going to happen more frequently. And it, I wonder if you're ever going to get to a point where we will try to get out ahead of these. I mean, I know in China, in theory, I have heard that they are, they're going to like Certain tech companies are saying they're going to try to fund, you know, algorithms that are going to be able to determine okay. where they could possibly I, go. Wrong I know with that. exactly, and that's kind of how I feel as well. But
0: yeah, and Google has had its flu index for a long time because they they measure how many searches there are for "I've got a temperature" or something, and they can work out where the flu is.
2: It's a little terrifying, and <laughs> probably a good segue. Yeah.
1: Speaking of terrifying,
0: speaking of terrifying, let's talk about Clearview.
1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Big story over the weekend in the New York Times, a little newspaper headquartered in Midtown.
0: It's, yeah, Cash Hill, who's, you know, an awesome reporter I used to work with back in the day. Um, she finally cracked open the, the Clearview story, which is a very... Very sketchy company run by a very very sketchy founder CEO, um, who I can recommend. You know, googling what Gawker used to write about him back in the day. Um, but and I think one of the reasons he got funding from Peter Thiel was because they like bonded over like hating Gawker and being having had mean things written about them by Gawker.
1: Should you say his name to complete your sh- smear of this guy?
0: No, oh. I don't know If you want, yeah, let's 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 out <laughs> this man.
1: Okay, I think it's pronounced hon-ton-that. Do I have that right? I think so. Yeah, so he's the sketchy, is Felix's word, um, fellow that's founded Clearview, the sketchy company that has amassed a huge database of people's faces and is peddling it to law enforcement agencies everywhere around the country.
0: And BuzzFeed had another little baby investigation into him and his weird ties to sort of the alt-right. Um,
2: And this also happened at the same time where you had Google come out and say that they want there to be a delay on investing more in facial recognition.
0: So facial recognition is a thing that exists. Um, Anyone who (laughs) has I I am literally (laughs) sitting here in front of my new iPhone and my face unlocks my phone and um, I've had my face recognized at, last time I came into the country through global entry. And they're just like, oh, yeah, we know who you are. Just come in. I'm like, that's kind of terrifying. Um, but, but
1: wait, that sounds awesome as well. <laughs> this is the issue. And was it?
0: It was. To be honest. It, it it felt weirder than it felt awesome. Although uh-huh. I did get through the, you know, customs and immigration incredibly quickly because they were like, yeah, we've recognized your hey, face. Felix. Just come on through. <laughs> and um, it's toothpaste that cannot be put back in the tube. And there are literally billions of faces on the internet that people have uploaded on Instagram, on Facebook. uh, I mean, it's literally called Facebook and on a bunch of other places. And those billions of images have been scraped, not only by Clearview AI, but I'm sure by many, many other companies. And the technical challenge of being able to recognize whose face is whose is a solved problem. Like, this is now mathematically not a difficult thing to do. And so it probably on some level comes as no surprise that there is a company which is saying, hey, we can do this. We may have violated all, every single terms of service of Facebook and Instagram and everyone else in order to be able to do it, but we have done it. And if you give us a face, we will tell you whose face it is. And, and then now what?
1: And now one more thing. I think I read this just this morning that in London, they just announced that they're going to be using facial recognition, recognition technology in real time. So like when the L- London police are looking for someone, a suspect, they can, and someone's walking down the street, they can apparently do it right away. They can Yay. nab you on the street. So it's really everywhere. But as you
2: say, like the cat is out of the bag. Like we're we're not going to go back here. So then I guess the idea is how do you regulate it? And how do you regulate it also with the idea that other countries are going to regulate it differently? Because it does seem like you could very easily get a kind of facial recognition, you know, AI arms race, where the US government and, you know, national security is not going to want to fall behind in this, is not going to want regulations to get in the way of advancement. Oh my God, this However,
0: is straight like, out of Dr. Love, isn't yeah. it? We, we cannot have a mineshaft gap. Spare. <laughs>
1: <It's fair. laughs> um, I mean, I think you have to... I don't. I think you have to regulate it with um, civil rights in mind, right? I mean, that's the most important thing here. You don't want law, law enforcement agencies like running roughshod with this information, just using it willy-nilly. Like, there needs to be real laws and regulations around how this information can be used to take away people's rights.
0: And the kind of interesting, but probably with hindsight, inevitable part of this is that Clearview tried to use its technology in various ways, which never really got off the ground, until they hit upon the one which really worked, which was selling it to police departments. And the police department's like, this is awesome. I have like a CCTV, you know, still image of someone, you know, committing an assault. I'll just plug that into this database and boom, I get a name. And then if I'll investigate that person, if it looks like they were in that place at that time and they had the motive and blah, 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 then I'll arrest them. And case solved. You can see why this is incredibly attractive to police. And the police are on some level the hardest part of civil society to constrain with laws. And it's, you know, you could try and pass a law saying no one used face recognition, but that's not going to stop like the NSA from using face recognition. They're just going to do whatever they can do anyway
1: right but i think you can set boundaries on like you can't just use face recognition to i mean there was some of that yeah, I mean, the like, time like well, to you have be fair, to have other evidence besides sure. the facial recognition piece
0: sure i mean i don't think i don't think anyone i don't think we've yet reached the point at which you know a match on clearview is going to be enough to get a guilty verdict in the court of law right that's a separate issue but the question is can the police use the database in the first place and i'm kind of with Adam, on this one, I think that it's going to be incredibly hard now that you have multiple police departments already using it. It's going to be very hard to get them to stop using it.
2: And and you might not agree with me on this, but like there also probably are some benefits, yeah. for them using it, right? You know, what I mean, yeah. like the, it isn't all bad. And you know, obviously, we want to make sure that it's accurate, um, and we want to make sure it's not being and Kashmir
0: like the one thing which she was quite clear about especially on Twitter but also in her article is like it's accurate it's stunningly accurate you put faces in and and he can't, he'll tell you exactly who it is and more to the point she managed to get this database of like uh thousands of artificial faces from this called well, this person does not exist and she put all of those into the database and every single time the database said nope, this person no match. And it's amazing how how accurate it is.
1: Now, um, so we talked about how law enforcement might use it, how it might be used in the criminal justice system, but what awful things will America's biggest companies use this for? I mean, Apple's using it for the good, so you can But also get into a good things. <laughs> so but amazing. like am I gonna live in some like Tom Cruise movie where I walk into the mall and like all the screens start like giving messages to me through my airpods about what i should buy tailored to me and like are they going to do like creepy stuff once they know my face or they're not going to let me i don't know drive my car because they see my face and they know like i'm delinquent on my auto loan like what terrible things are in store for us because
0: of all this of type. that <laughs> and and like and the and the interesting question is as you say there's been this announcement this week from Google saying we're putting a moratorium on face recognition. Like we, this is a deeply problematic technology. We want to make sure that anything we do is ethical. All of this kind of stuff. If you know, and I, I can see why they said that, and I in no way disapprove of them saying that. But it's much easier on some level to talk to Google and try and stay on top of what they're doing and and how their stuff is being used. And if it winds up being like sketchy companies like Clearview, yeah. Yeah, that's in in some way even worse.
1: Right. Although maybe some of of what we think we know about Clearview is exaggerated. That story you sent around that said the company is claiming X number of law enforcement agencies use its technology. But really it's just Mm -hmm. sending tips into the police and saying, oh, we caught your guy. And then they count that maybe. So it might not be.
0: So uh, yeah, there's but no there's no real evidence that Clearview is itself like a massively successful or valuable company.
2: Okay.
0: Um, but
1: I think
2: what you just said is really interesting in terms of thinking of the role of these larger tech companies moving forward, because it does seem like it would, in fact, be easier to regulate a small number of companies that have access to a lot of these most advanced technology. But then on the other hand, if we think that's going to give those companies a lot of power, so then, you know, if you break them up... Then they will have less power, but then it may actually be harder to regulate.
0: I mean, I do think on some level, like you know, Cambridge Analytica famously did all of its evil things by using data that it had illegally scraped from Facebook, and eventually Facebook realized that and effectively shut them down and said, "You know, you violated our terms of service. You need to destroy all of this data." And now Cambridge Analytica is not really a thing anymore. you know, I, I feel it's inevitable that Facebook is going to crack down on Clearview and say, you know, you violated a gazillion of our terms of service and you have to just stop operating. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Clearview basically implode in the next few weeks just because they have no right to any of these images that they've managed to put into this database. So, you know, that particular company, on some level, I'm not worried about. And although it is almost certainly true that these, images are now out there, and that Clearview is not the only company to have this database of 3 billion images. I do think that the idea of this making its way into the open world every time you walk into a shopping mall, every time you w- walk into your car, that kind of thing, for that you're going to need you know, the shopping mall companies and the auto companies to be dealing with legitimate legal vendors. And right now, there's no legitimate legal vendor that has access to a database of f- 3 billion images because none of those databases are legitimate or legal
1: I would like to walk into my to get in my car and it just starts because of yeah. my face <laughs> some of this <laughs> stuff does sound really it really, really
0: kind of does appealing.
1: Really <laughs> Like, like I, no more passwords oh that would be a miracle I mean so we're you, getting there. You, wait, we're getting that you want
0: you want to live in a world of no car keys
1: oh yeah I mean actually having a car key has not proven to be an inconvenience for me. In the least, it's the passwords that I hate the most, all the many, many passwords. I mean to pull out cards like and cards. yeah, I wanna just be free <laughs> by being shackled to my face <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and having everyone in the world know who I am all the time.
0: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house, I got people camped here, ranks at my computer. And I I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: (sighs) And if all of that wasn't scary enough...
0: Let's talk about... Bushfires. (laughs) Bushfires are destroying Australia, and... Someone sent me a tweet. Yes. And I'm going to call up the tweet.
1: Felix sent the tweet around and said, let's talk about this.
0: It's from Jason Morrison in Australia. And it says this. It says, $95 million donated to Red Cross Bushfire Fund. But, quote, some of the funds would be saved to spend towards disasters in the future, unquote. People didn't donate so the Red Cross could bank. There are people living in tents who've lost homes, and whole communities in distress spend the money.
1: So, Felix, yes, what is your take on this? Because a few weeks ago, I was just remembered this morning. You wrote kind of about how donations to the bushfires, though well intentioned, perhaps aren't necessary. So, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you think.
0: So, I ha- so there are two different stories here, um, both of which, on some level, are you know squarely in the Felix Philanthrogeek wheelhouse. One of them is what you just said, which is a huge proportion of the donations has gone to the volunteer firefighters in New South Wales who are effectively a government agency. And what you have is this very interesting phenomenon of people basically donating money to the Australian government, (laughs) Um, which, you know, is, is not what you would consider to be a cash-constrained course. <laughs> yes. You know, if they need more money, they can just raise taxes or they can just, like, take or borrow money on the international bond markets and give it to the fire department. You know, the government obviously has some kind of budget constraints and does or doesn't fund the fire department, but there's this fire department in particular has not actually complained about being underfunded. But there is just this very deep-seated feeling of... I wanted. to do something, all I can really think of to do is give money. Who should I give money to? Well, the people who are putting themselves in harm's way and fighting the fire, these volunteer firefighters, they are literally unpaid. And so I'm going to help support them. And it's it's really quite effective in terms of making the giver feel better and feel that they have done something. And I just worry a little bit that, you know, on some level, especially with the current Australian government, that this is going to mean that the government is going to turn around and go, huh, We don't even need to fund this fire department anymore because there's so much money just coming in from, you know, uh, American film stars who are like uh, the Golden Globes.
1: I mean, the Australian government recently agreed, I believe, to start paying some of the volunteer firefighters because they're working so much. Yes, Um, But then is the Red Cross then, it's tangential to what you just said. And then the Red Cross is a separate
0: issue. People
1: love to hate the red cross am i right with that
0: so the red the american red cross is something we have talked about many times on slate money okay. and is i am just going to come out and say a bad charity and do not give money to the american red cross because they are bad okay although that said they are getting better and they are doing less bad stuff and more good stuff and when i was down in houston after hurricane harvey They were actually pretty effective at just going out and giving $400 in cash to everyone who was affected, which is a pretty effective way of dealing with it rather than what they used to do, which is, you know, trying to get a bunch of ambulances and blankets. And remember after Sandy, how they... Served a whole bunch of like pork dinners to the Jews. It was it was great. Um, but yeah, the Australian Red Cross. It's not the American Red Cross. Do not tar the Australian Red Cross with the American Red Cross brush. Or most national Red Cross agencies are actually quite good. I have no reason to believe the Australian okay. one isn't. Um, so that's fine. Just like as an institution, the question then is: Should you be worried if you give? Money to the Australian Red Cross to help them respond to the wildfires. That they might not spend all of that, and they might keep some back for future disasters. And the answer is, you should not be worried about that. You should hope and expect that they do that. Right. You should want them to do that. Um, you you know why, right? Do Do we need to spell this one out?
1: Because more disasters are coming, and and so there. so yes I mean that's so that's part (laughs) of it
0: Um, I mean obviously we're living in the age of global warming these are not going to be the last wildfires in Australia and the most important time to for an agency like the Red Cross to be able to respond to a disaster is immediately right. and not after the money comes right. in. So you want them to, be, to have the money they need to be able to respond immediately and then you use some of the money from the last campaign to spend immediately with this one and then the money will come in and you, you're basically paying it forward.
2: Right. And I think that you understand where the anger comes from. And I think just in the same way that people want to give money because they feel like they can't do anything else, I think people want someone to blame for this. And it's hard to blame nature. So they have now, OK, it's the Australian Red Cross.
0: <laughs> but there's but there's something else going on. There's There's a bigger reason here. And this actually goes back to one of the reasons why the American Red Cross is bad. It's mostly its own fault. But there's one reason which is not its own fault. Which is that after 9-11, the American Red Cross got a huge number of donations. And there were actually very few places where they could effectively spend that money. (laughs) Right. Because virtually everyone who was injured in 9-11 died you know and like the effect the eventual like lung disease and stuff happened years and years later but there was a lot of people who died and you can't really help the people who've died and the job of the red cross is not to sort of help the victims families that kind of thing no
1: i remember they had like the tent set up for survivors Mm. and they they were were just just, empty yeah my, my friend was working for a hospital at the time and she was like we just sit there
0: and and what you wound up with was the Red Cross saying, great, we have all of this money and we're going to put it to really good use, but we're not going to put it to great use at Ground Zero because there's really not much we can do down there. And there was the mother of all uproars. And everyone's like, we gave money to 9-11 and we want it spent on 9-11 and not on anything else. And then that created this like earmarking crisis, basically, where the Red Cross got shamed into feeling like it had to spend all money related to a certain disaster on that disaster and not on anything else. And that, in turn, created like an internal accounting chaos, which was incredibly unhelpful and created a lot of problems. And it's, again, what we're seeing in, in in Australia, and in just in general, if you give money to a charity, you have to believe in that charity. You have to trust that charity to Spend that money well. If you don't trust the charity to spend the money well, do not give money to that charity. And if you do trust the charity to spend that money well, don't try and second guess where and how they're spending it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it kind of reminds me of even like when people are giving to universities, and you get certain departments that are massively overfunded, whereas because people say, "I am giving money to this one department," and so I think it's
0: always that, the business school. It's always the
2: business school. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. So this is one of these instances where this desire people have to have control over their giving actually makes the giving less less effective.
1: I also want to point out a similarity between this story, people rushing to give money out of kind of a sense of panic and and powerlessness and just wanting to do something with the segment we did on the Mm -hmm. pandemic, which is a similar kind of emotion in people reacting to things that are sort of just absolutely out of your control. And you're trying to put your arms around something or trying to control it. And, and so it's like almost like the same motivation behind like giving during a crisis like this when it's maybe not even useful and kind of like, I don't know, like wearing a mask in downtown New York City because you're afraid of getting this respiratory illness from well, China that only two people
0: Right, have so or, or for that matter, you know, the people who are convinced that if they spend a little bit more effort on recycling, that's going to help save the planet.
1: Yeah, right. and I think this this also points out like if we're going to deal with uh, climate change and global warming, like the answer isn't give money to charities. The answer is you know pay taxes, pay more taxes, vote, get the government involved because that's, that's who can really take collective action to I'm, like, I'm fix these write problems. I'm going to write
0: more about this next week in Axios Edge, but Union Square Ventures has just invested in a venture-backed, for-profit carbon offset company. And you're like, oh, great. You know, like, no good can come of this. (laughs)
3: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Let's have a numbers round. Okay. What's your number, Emily? Uh,
3: I guess it's one.
0: You guess it's one? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you, do you want to, like you know worry just, about this number
1: it's one it's goldman sachs they said um at davos on, on thursday that they won't take your company public if you don't have at least one unwhite unmale person on your board of directors could be a woman could be it
0: was a little bit weird about whether she needs to be on the board of directors or just like on the list of maybe becoming on the board or... Board adjacent. Board adjacent.
1: So, I mean, people are very excited about this. They think it's great. Will the other one, the other underwriter banks follow? It is kind of interesting to me how quickly this board diversity push has kind of like taken off. Like, it does seem like there's some kind of progress, which kind of just then makes me skeptical about the whole thing as like anything more than just window dressing.
0: Well, I mean, what David Solomon that. Goldman CEO said is that they're going to start with one and then in a couple of years they're going to move it to two. Which is, I think, two. Uh, when you get to two, it starts actually being. Yes, meaningful. it does. Yeah. When it's
1: one, you're the token whatever. And I mean, Goldman in setting its rules couldn't be clear. Like they'll take any token <laughs> woman, black person. They put sexual orientation as as a one two, so, so that counts. When, you can have a white man, but if he is gay, then so when that Goldman counts.
0: Sachs went public, I went back to <laughs> look this up. When Goldman Sachs went public, they had board, They had seven board members. Four of them were named John, <laughs> and none of them were a woman. It um, wasn't that long ago, and it wasn't that long ago. But I think they would count because one of the Johns was John Brown, who was gay. There you go. That he counts. wasn't out, but he was gay. Well, then
1: does that? Yeah, that mean does that that's count. a big yeah. question.
0: That's a big question. Yeah, maybe maybe he could have just been out count. to his lead underwriter and that would that would be enough but
1: then they would get all the media calls of outrage and they would have (laughs) to be like can we go on background
0: they'd be like they're like we are going to attest that at least one of our seven men is gay we're just going to tell you which one
1: yeah i don't think that's working (laughs) i don't think that would have worked um so there you go so
2: my number is 130 million this number kind of made me think of you oh this is the value of the presidential plane in mexico so the Mexican president, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, has decided he does not need this plane. They should not have this plane. And he wants to sell this plane. So he tried to sell the plane. The problem is he couldn't get any bid that actually matched the value of the plane. So then he came up with some other ideas. He was going to have like maybe just give it to the U.S. and the U.S. would give Mexico a bunch of like medical supplies or he was going to give it to a bunch of different companies or then came to my personal favorite, having a raffle. <laughs> He's raffling off a He was plane. going to raffle off <laughs> the <laughs> presidential plane. And it just keeps getting better. This is and so, like And granted, obviously, the presidential plane costs like a million and a half dollars a year to service. So he's like, we'll give you like one or two years of free service. You're like, that's not enough. But then my absolute favorite part of this story is that it kind of blew up on like Mexican social media. And so this literary magazine started this contest and the contest was the best short story that began with these lines and when he woke up he discovered he had won the presidential plane
1: (laughs) is it too late to
2: submit uh, okay look i don't actually think they're doing the raffle it was just it was one of the things he said and it was amazing
0: so yeah what do you i mean yeah what do you do with a secondhand plane that nobody wants
2: (laughs) It's apparently a very nice plane.
0: <laughs> so, why does nobody want it?
1: Well, I, someone. It's probably just
2: it's not priced right. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My number is 0.13%, which is the acceptance rate for becoming a Chick fil A franchisee. Apparently, 60,000 people a year apply to become Chick fil A franchisees and they accept 80 wow. of them. Wow. <laughs> um, Which is way lower than it is, you know, it's way harder to get that than it is to get a job at Google or get into Stanford or anything like that. And one of the reasons is all other franchises, you pay millions of dollars and then you basically own the franchise and you get all the profits and you have to pay like 5% of revenues or something up to the parent company. Chick fil A pays everything pretty much and it can pay up to like $2 million. They pay the cost of opening up the store, they pay for the real estate, the equipment. But then they take 50% of the profit and 15% of sales. All you need to... The, the franchisee pays like $10,000. That's it. It's a completely separate model.
1: So is it a good deal for the franchisee?
0: There's much less downside. Okay. But there's also much less upside.
1: So how much do they make?
0: Most... And this is, this is the other... This is fascinating article. Um, the majority of fast food franchise restaurant owners make less than $50,000 a year per franchise. It's like... If you own a lot of them and they're big in major cities, then you can get like a multi-million dollar revenue stream from them. But most of these are really small in terms of profits. So So the margins are tiny.
2: Yeah. But although I would imagine, though, that this is going to, it's going to be higher barriers of entry, though, for there to be new Chick-fil-A's. So I would think that that would make it a slightly better deal for those who are able to jump through all the hoops to get to actually start a franchise.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's like Chick-fil-A has... An average revenue per store of $4.2 million, which is way higher than any, like, like KFC it. is 1.2, McDonald's is 2.8. It's, like, way, way higher. But that, precisely because of that, they're like, we want to keep that money. We don't want to just let our franch- franchisees keep it. So they have a very different system.
1: That's so interesting. And uh, have we ever talked about um, the law where it's, like, uh, companies like McDonald's don't want to be responsible for, like, labor violations, their franchise? Restaurants, the franchisees. I wonder how it is for Chick Fil A if they're taking fifty percent. Like they have to be responsible for the behavior, then for the labor violations and things from the stores, right?
0: You You have to look into that. You don't look like you've convinced even yourself.
1: We can cut this. I'm just interested.
0: We will look into this. We we, we might (laughs) have a Chick Fil A segment (laughs) on some future episode of Slate Money. But for the time being, I think that's it for us this week. We are going to have. Slate Plus segment on Smile Direct so that's coming up if you're a Slate Plus listener otherwise thank you for listening thank you for emailing Slate.com. thank you to Jessamine Molly for producing and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money